Have you ever heard of a must-have item? A must-have or, or a must-see event? You know, it's, it's that, that item that you just have to buy right now. It's that movie or that show that you just must see right now. It's just a, just a must-have. It's a, it's a must-see. Well, we are entering the season of the year where there are a lot of must-haves and a lot of must-sees. A ton, to tell you the truth. And you know that there's always a list out there of the must-have Christmas toys, and it's already out in a lot of different forms. In fact, if you look at this year's must-have Christmas toys, you'll think you're reading a list from 1977 when you first start reading through some of it because of all the Star Wars things that are in there. So here's just a few things of this year's must-have. Hasbro's Blade Builder Jedi Master Lightsaber, Lego's The Millennium Falcon, Lego's City Deep Sea Exploration Vessel, you can be writing this down if you need to. And then one more, Disney's Frozen Sing-Along Elsa. I'm sorry, Meredith. For our, for our parents of young children, Sing-Along Elsa would be a moment for me just to say on behalf of our church, a loving and sincere bless your heart. Because we all know at some point in time that as you're driving over the river and through the woods to Grandma's house, you will want to hold that Christmas toy outside the window and let it go. <laughs> Sorry, that was just too easy. It is hard to live in a must-have world. We live in a, a Western culture that really pushes us to get the latest and the greatest all the time. But let me just give you a kind reminder this morning. You don't have to have it. You really, really don't. You really don't have to have the latest and the greatest. You see, Jesus wasn't just giving us a, a cute phrase for a painting or to tattoo on a pewter tray when he said, give us this day our daily bread. That really is our need. It's, it's what we need the most. The World Food Program says that one out of every nine people on the earth don't have enough food to live a healthy, active lifestyle. Well, what is a healthy, active lifestyle? Well, think of it this way. More than likely, none of us in this room are in the one of the nine. We're in the eight. We have the food that we need to function in our daily life. Maybe bring it a little closer to home, Harvest Hope reports that one out of every six families in the state of South Carolina do not have enough food to feed their families at night. So image that a little bit when you think about your drive home or your drive to work or your drive to school or wherever it is that you go. Image that maybe in an apartment complex or on a street that one out of those six apartments or one out of those six houses do not have enough food to feed their family that night. Now, don't give in to the temptation that says, well, those people are just all lazy, and if they go out and get a job, they would have enough food for the night. That's not always the case. Some of the ones in the one out of the six are senior adults, and they have enough money for food or medicine, but they choose medicine. So it's not always just people who won't go get a job. There are some people who struggle with hunger and a lack of nutrition for a number of other reasons. Our church is part of the Southern Baptist Convention. That is a, an international group of churches all over the world. It's a denomination that has churches in every corner of the globe. 
A little closer, we're also connected to the South Carolina Baptist Convention, which is kind of a smaller uh, extension of the Southern Baptist Convention. And even closer, we're part of the Lexington Baptist Association, which is even a, a smaller part of the state and the national. And as Southern Baptists, as a Southern Baptist church, one of the things we do is we give to what's called the cooperative program. And part of our cooperative program at giving goes to something called Global Hunger Relief, a ministry of the Southern Baptist Convention. And our giving to that ministry means that unlike other hunger relief ministries, the overhead costs are kind of covered so 100% of the resources are able to go to hunger relief and to nutrition needs all over the world. We are also connected financially and even through volunteers with ministries even more local than that. Ministries like God's Helping Hand and, and LICS, the Lexington Interfaith Community Services. Now, I, I share these things not to, to pat our church on the back or to say what a great job that we're doing, but more to let you know that there are opportunities for you to give and to serve and to volunteer that have a much greater value than a great deal on an electronic the day after Thanksgiving. I know what you're thinking. Man, he, he really went from Christmas toys to giving us tickets for a guilt trip pretty fast. I'm really not trying to load guilt on you, but what I am wanting to do is to encourage and challenge all of us not to be so addicted to Black Friday, not to be so addicted to the must-haves of this season, that our faith and our trust and our hope in Jesus Christ begin to be a, a faded blur behind the shopping, behind the tinsel, and behind the gifts. That our faith in Christ would take a back seat. I, I want to challenge us to make sure we don't do that. So how can we move in that direction? Well, one way at least that we can move in that direction is discovering what the true ultimate must-have is for every single season of life. And what is that? Well, let's find out. Psalm 19, beginning with verse 7. King David writes, The law of the Lord is perfect. Perfect. Looking for the perfect gift? There's only one, the law of the Lord. David uses a word here for law that means instructions or directions. So perfect instructions and, and perfect directions, perfect law. What is the law of the Lord? Well, for David, generally speaking, it would have been the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in those five books, there is tremendous truth. There is creation. There is rescue. There is freedom. There is hope. And there is law. But not just any kind of law. The kind of law that really helps us with the ultimate answers of life. And when we consider those first five books, the law that kind of sticks out above all the rest of them would naturally be the Ten Commandments. Jeff Thomas has pastored Alfred Place Baptist Church in Aberystwyth, Wales for more than 40 years. This is what he says. The Ten Commandments are amongst the simplest parts of the Scriptures. Even in the 21st century, they're not laughable. They're not extreme. They're not babyish. They are just magnificent. They can be summed up like this. To love Almighty God with all our beings and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Isn't that perfect law? And then he says this, the Ten Commandments consist of 173 words in the Hebrew. You compare that to the European Union's regulations for the importing of cauliflowers, which consist of 30,000 words. 
We have some regulations like that, don't we? Sometimes we have regulations like that in our government. Sometimes we even have regulations like that in the church. But he's right. Those 173 words in the Ten Commandments are magnificent. They are incredible. They give us a bit of the meaning of life and a bit of how we are supposed to live our lives. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, hey, if God can do it in 173 words, then why does it take God more, down more than 3,000 on Sunday morning? Can't, can't Dow shorten this stuff down. God did it in 173. Garrison Keeler said this, English is the perfect language for preachers because it allows you to talk until you think of what to say. Good word. So why don't we just stop at the Ten Commandments? I mean, why don't, why don't every preacher in the world, why doesn't he just stand up on Sunday mornings, read, read those 173 words, and then, and then just sit down? Why doesn't he do that? Well, if you remember from last week, we talked about how creation finds its ultimate fulfillment in something else. And we used the expression that creation is kind of the, the first verse of the gospel. And then you have the chorus. And so we could say, using the same expression, that the law of the Lord, the, the Ten Commandments, are the second verse of the gospel. And then you go back to the chorus. And so what's the chorus of the gospel? Well, Jesus had been crucified. He had been executed. He had been put in a tomb. But he came back to life. He had been resurrected. Two of his followers were walking down a road one day, and they didn't know that Jesus had risen. And they were talking, and they were discouraged, and they were frustrated, and they were sad. And Jesus appeared to them on the road and started walking with them. And, and for some reason, by God's design, these two guys did not recognize the risen Jesus. And so Jesus began to talk to them. And this is what it says in the scriptures. Luke 24, 27. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. The chorus of the Ten Commandments is Jesus the Christ. See, the Old Testament is this huge movie trailer of the Messiah. It's all about the Messiah. Mark Devers put it this way, the Old Testament are, are promises that God has made, and the New Testament are the promises that God has kept. Promises made and, and promises kept. And Jesus talks to these confused, frustrated guys on the road. And why are they confused? Why are they frustrated? Well, they're confused and they're frustrated because their great candidate was going to change everything. He was going to get elected, and, and he was going to do all the things that needed to be done and, and get things back to the way that they were supposed to be. But then their candidate got arrested, and then their candidate got crucified. Then their candidate died, and they lost hope. And why did they lose hope? Well, they lost hope because they were putting their confidence in Jesus the human instead of Jesus as God. They were putting their confidence that this human Jesus, who was this great teacher and this miracle worker, that, that he was going to, to clean up the culture and he was going to put everything back on track like it should be. Do we hear anything familiar for our culture? Listen, you need to be wise. You need to consider candidates. You need to pray hard. You need to vote well. But don't miss this scene with Jesus. Jesus turns to these two guys and he says, you need to aim higher. 
You don't need to look at the big picture. You need to look at the biggest picture. These guys are confused. They're frustrated. They're sad. They have no idea what's going on. And Jesus gives them the chorus to go along with the second verse. He starts with the law and the prophets so that they would see that this is what God was always doing. Someone put it this way. Jesus turns to the two men and he begins to talk to them about who the Messiah really was. He tells them that the Messiah was the seed in the garden with the bruised heel. That he was the ultimate blessing of Abraham to all nations. That he was the highest priest after the order of Melchizedek. He was the lion of the tribe of Judah. He was the final Passover lamb. He was the prophet that was greater than Moses. The king that was greater than David. The good and loving shepherd of Psalm 23. The perfect wisdom of Proverbs. The savior of Isaiah 53. The ruler of Daniel whose kingdom will never The reason preachers don't just preach those 173 words and sit down is because God, out of his kindness, has given us an entire book of truth and hope and joy in Jesus. Just a few quick facts about the Bible. There's 66 books. There's 39 in the Old Testament. There's 27 in the New. There's more than 40 authors. It's broken down into five sections. You have the Law and the Prophets, the Wisdom, the Psalms, the Gospels, and the Epistles. It was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. It was written on three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. It was written over the course of 1,500 years. Back in the 1,200s, they added chapters, and back in the 1,500s, they added the verses so that all of us can read it a little better. Now, what do all those facts have to do with anything? Well, they don't paint the picture of some strange religious cult that's trying to get people to waste their time and, and waste their money listening to a, a loudmouth, big-haired guy wearing a baby blue sport coat, screaming and yelling, holding up a, a black leather Bible and slapping it and thumping it and telling everybody that they better turn or they're going to burn. That's not the picture that we get from this book, the Bible. The picture those facts paint is that the Bible is this global, multicultural, divinely inspired book that not only helps with our life here on earth, that not only helps us with our behavior here on earth, but the Bible actually has the hope and salvation for the human soul. When David wrote that God's law is perfect, what he meant was that God's law is complete. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, we tried to cover all the bases? What that means is they, they tried to consider every situation. They tried to, to look at everything. And so what we have here from Genesis to Revelation, what we have here is through a number of different authors, through a number of different languages, and a number of different countries, over 1,500 years, we have God consistently inspiring the Bible to cover all the bases. God has designed this book to make sure that we find what we need to find. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to find import regulations for cauliflower in the Bible. We'll be there. But there will be principles for import regulations for cauliflower. Here's one, Proverbs 22, verse 1. A good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. Your import regulations, in other words, should be fair. They should just be fair. You should, 
you should not try to rip people off with your regulations. Don't charge the guy in the blue boat more money than the guy in the green boat just because you don't like blue. You know, that's, that's not fair. For the best that you know how, be fair and honest in your dealings. Listen, there's always going to be the lady that complains that the repairman is 43 seconds late. There's always going to be the guy in the restaurant that, that whines that his fish sandwich only had 71% of the, the tartar sauce that he saw in the picture on the menu. Those people are always going to be around. It's going to be hard sometimes to do the right thing. It's going to be hard to be fair. It's going to be hard to be honest. But just do it. Be fair and be honest in how you conduct your business, regardless of how old you may be, young or old. Be fair and honest in your business at home, at work, at school, at church, in the community, and even in your thought life. Be fair and honest with your business and how you live your life. See, God designed the Bible to help us with principles of life and then sometimes even specific truths. But He designed the Bible to help us with every aspect of our lives. In other words, God made sure that He covered all the bases. And that's what makes the Bible the most incredible book in the universe because it's more than a book. Samuel Taylor Coleridge put it this way. I know the Bible is inspired because it finds me at greater depths of my being than any other book. You see, through the work of the Holy Spirit, the Bible is the only book that can convince you that your sin separates you from God and that there's no way you can build a bridge to make that right. The Bible, through the work of the Holy Spirit, is the only book that can convince you that you're being an arrogant dictator of a husband, that you're being a selfish drama queen of a wife, that you are being a spiritually lazy, biblically unconscious father, or that you're being a spiritually erratic, biblically flip-flopping mother. The Bible is the only book that can convince you that you're being a, a rude, disrespectful teenager or a critical my way or the highway grandfather or a spoiling everybody can have whatever they want grandmother. See, only the Bible can do that. Only, only the Bible gets in to our hearts and our minds and our souls and convinces us that what we are doing is actually wrong. And the Bible doesn't just convince us casually about these things. It actually gives us the price of our sin. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Falling short, what does that mean? Paul explains a little more just a few chapters later. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. So falling short of the glory of God is not just getting a C- minus on a geometry test. Falling short of the glory of God is not just burning the Thanksgiving turkey. Falling short of the glory of God is not just five miles over the speed limit. Falling short of the glory of God is not just being an accomplice to murder. Falling short of the glory of God means eternal death. Not the kind of death where you just die and and that's it. You don't feel anything afterwards. But the kind of death that you die and then somehow spiritually and emotionally and even physically you experience horror and terror that we cannot even describe in human terms. That's how the Bible defines falling short. But remember, 
The Bible is perfect and complete. The law of the Lord is perfect and complete. So it gives the awful, terrible news that we don't want to hear. And then it also gives the wonderful, awesome news that we do want to hear. So listen to the rest of Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. The good news and the bad news. The terrible news and the terrific news. This is how God's word works. You see, when Jesus talked to those two guys on the road, they were confused, they were frustrated, they were discouraged, they were sad, and Jesus told them about the law and the prophets because he wanted them to know nobody has kept those 173 words. And nobody can keep those 173 words. They are God's standard. They are his instructions. He has given them to us to honor and to live by. In fact, even someone who's not a Christian can obey the law of the Lord and it will go well with them on this earth. But Jesus told them about the law and the prophets because he wanted them to see there's only one who has kept those perfectly. And that one person is not in this room. And that one person is not on your family tree. And that one person is not an American from the South. The only person who has kept God's law is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And that's why he is the only one qualified to make things right between us and God. See, Jesus told those two guys about the Messiah. He told them about the law and the prophets because he was trying to draw them to the truth of the gospel. He wanted them to see, guys, I am not your candidate. I am the king of kings. I am the Lord of lords. And he doesn't hold those for two terms. Jesus is forever the king of kings. He is forever the Lord of lords. And that will never change. You see, the law of the Lord is always pulling us to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And what should that do to you? What does the law of the Lord have to do with your daily life? How can the law of the Lord help your soul on the normal days and the normal moments and on the hard, difficult moments? Well, David goes on to tell us the next part of the verse. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Restoring, reviving, refreshing, converting. In other words, God has designed the Bible to be able to change and transform your heart and your mind and your soul at any given moment on any given day, regardless of what your circumstances are. That's how God designed his word. God's word does not need a prequel. It does not need a sequel. It is perfect. It is complete It is all sided in and of itself. You cannot look any other way. Now, why does that matter for you? Some of you may have heard the song that has the line in it, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. I think it was was copyrighted back in the 1930s, I think. So it's been around for a while. Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. That is very true in a sense. Every day that a believer is alive is a a day we're kind of closer to being with Jesus forever. To experiencing perfect peace and perfect hope and perfect love and perfect joy and perfect happiness forever and ever and ever. Every, Every day is a little closer to that. 
But in another sense, we've also experienced that every day with Jesus is not always sweeter than the day before. John Piper writes, Some days with Jesus, our disposition is as sour as raw persimmons. Some days with Jesus, we are so sad, we feel our heart will break open. Some days with Jesus, fear turns us into a knot of nerve ends. Some days with Jesus, we are so depressed and discouraged that between the garage and the house, we just want to sit down on the grass and cry. Ever been there? And then he says this, If every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before, we would not need to be revived. You see, David wrote this on purpose. It wasn't an accident. And he didn't write about the law of Lord by an accident. See, David knew that every day is not peachy. Every day is not perfect. Every day does not go the way you want it to go. And so he writes about the law of the Lord because he knew that the law of the Lord could refresh and revive and restore. He knew that the law of the Lord could bring some sweet hope to his soul again. Piper goes on to say this, When Satan huffs and puffs and tries to blow out the flame of your joy, you have an endless supply of kindling in the word of God. And even though there are days when we feel that every cinder in our soul is cold, yet if we crawl to the word of God and cry out for ears to hear, the cold ashes will be lifted and the tiny spark of life will be fanned. Why? Because the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. That's why. So what does that look like in real life? Most of us have heard the news from Indianapolis this week of the cruel death of Amanda Blackburn and her unborn child. And Jane Driggers from our church shared with me that, that her and Keith's daughter, Mary Catherine, has actually been a close friend of Amanda's, even recently was up there visiting with her. So it brings this story a lot closer to home. Amanda's husband, Davey, is the pastor of Resonate Church in Indianapolis. On their website this week, he gave a, a response to all that's happened this week. And most of you have seen it. It's been widely circulated. But I just want to share one little part of the last sentence that he shared in his response. And it's this. I hold firm to the belief that God is still good. How? How in the midst of unimaginable pain can he hold to a belief that, that God is good? How can he hold to a belief that God is good when his soul is just shattered? Because Tuesday was not sweeter than Monday for Davy, And Wednesday was devastating compared to Tuesday for Davy. So how can he hold to this belief that God is still good. Because sometime, maybe Wednesday night, either with his Bible physically in his hand or, or with his Bible app or, or even just from his personal memorizing of the scriptures, Davy crawled to the word of God. And he cried out for ears to hear. And Almighty God, Yahweh, Jehovah, He heard His cry and He fanned 
a spark of love, and he refreshed, and he restored, and he revived his shattered soul. And he'll keep doing that over and over again for the days and weeks to come. Through the law of the Lord, Davy was able to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And through the law of the Lord, he was reminded that his bride had now seen Jesus face to face. No other book can do that for your soul. Only the law of the Lord. And that's why we say this morning that the law of the Lord, it is the ultimate must-have. Let us have it. Let us pursue it. Let us be revived by it. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your sweet kindness to be upon Davy Blackburn's heart even right now. Would you again revive and refresh and restore him? Would you help him again even now to see the glory that you have in the face of Jesus? Father, we pray for those throughout Paris who are in pain and sorrow. We pray for those who have no knowledge of what Davy has. Those who cannot believe that God is good because something awful happened. This morning we ask for our own hearts that you would help us to see that, that this perfect and complete law, it's, it's just good. It covers the bases. Forgive us for the times that we lean on our own understanding and, and forsake this book for something else. But we do ask that you would increase our joy in your word. Not so that we can be more religious, but so that we can be revived. So that we can be refreshed. So that when we're walking down the road sad and frustrated and confused and discouraged, that there would be sweet hope for our soul as we remember what you have done for us. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.